For our scripture reading, we turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We have been using this passage for our applicatory services for a while now. Because in this section of the epistle, the apostle is making application to the lives of believers that flows out of the facts of their salvation in Christ, the life of thankfulness. Let's begin our reading at verse 17, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being fat, a past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We read the word of God that far, and I call your attention to verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Beloved congregation, we have learned Christ again this morning, and we have heard the gospel of Christ, and we have found out again what wondrous things Christ has done for us. Now as we gather together in this applicatory worship service, we are called upon to listen to Christ teach us again, to listen as Christ exhorts us particularly in the words of this chapter, that we put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, and that we put on the new man, that we put off the deceitful lusts of the flesh, including, as we're going to consider today, the lusts that give rise to stealing. 
Before we were quickened together with Christ, and before we learned Christ from the gospel, we were completely unable to resist the urge to steal. And if not deterred by the knowledge that our neighbor will fight for his property, and if not restrained by the threat of the government throwing us behind bars, none of us would stop short of stealing in the worst possible ways. None of us would stop short of the grossest kinds of stealing, of theft and robbery, but we would do that. But now, even after we have been quickened together with Christ, even now after we have become Christians, even after we have come to know Christ, whether as a convert on a mission field, like many of the members of the church at Ephesus were, or whether we grew up in the church, like most of us gathered here. Either way, the fact is that even after being a Christian, we still have a corrupt nature. We still have in us the old man of sin, and that old man is constantly tempting us to walk in the paths of sin, including stealing including all the many different kinds of stealing that there are. And the fact is that we still commit this sin. Therefore, the apostle exhorts us in the text, he is exhorting us Christians, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. And I call your attention to the text under the theme, Steal No More. We notice, first of all, the admonition to stop stealing. Secondly, the exhortation to work with our hands. And thirdly, the calling to give to the needy. The apostle comes to us in the text and he says, Let him that stole steal no more. Now, we all know what stealing is. Even the children here know what stealing is. We learn about that when we are very young. We know that stealing could be defined as taking what belongs to someone else. Taking the property or possessions which belong to my neighbor, whether by force or whether by secrecy, or whether by some kind of dishonesty. It's taking those goods of my neighbor against his will, taking those goods of my neighbor without his permission, or perhaps even without his knowledge. That's stealing. As Christians, we believe that God is the creator of the whole universe, and as Psalm 24 puts it, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All things belong to God. But God distributes the good things of his creation to mankind, and he gives some things to some people and other things to other people so that he gives some of the silver and gold in the earth to my neighbor and not to me. And he gives some of it to me and not to my neighbor. And that serves then as the basis of the command not to steal. God says, don't steal. Because in my sovereign good pleasure, I have given those things to them and these things to you, 
Those belong to them, and these belong to you. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. The apostle admonishes us in the text, let him that stole steal no more. Now, if I would ask us the question whether we think that this includes us, do you think that the text includes you? Do you think that the apostle is speaking to you in the text and to me? I suppose that we would know that the right answer is yes, but we might be inclined to think, well, Sure, I suppose when I was young and foolish, I can probably recall a time or two when I stole something. If I really try hard, maybe I can remember several instances when I was a young and foolish person when I stole some things. But I wouldn't say that I steal habitually, or I wouldn't say that I steal regularly. I cannot truly recall the last time I stole something, many of us might think. And so we might be inclined to think, maybe the apostle is speaking in the text, not so much to me, but to those people in the church at Ephesus who perhaps were thieves in their former life. They used to be thieves. They used to be people who stole for a living. But now they've been converted. They've become Christians, and they've entered the church. And now the apostle is speaking to them, and he's telling them... You who stole, steal no more. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that the apostle in the text does not issue the exhortation to you who stole. He doesn't say in the text, you who stole, steal no more. If he said that, we might almost think that he was speaking to a specific person or a specific group of people in the church, maybe those who used to be thieves. But he doesn't say that. He's not singling them out. He says, rather, in the most generic of terms, let him that stole steal no more. And by that exhortation, he means to have it go out to the whole congregation. And he means to say that any one of you sitting here in these pews who has ever stolen anything in any way, shape, or form Steal no more. Do we not all fall into the sin of stealing in one way or another? And have we not also committed this sin in our lives in many clever little ways? We could look at the various spheres of our life in the home, in the school, in the church, and especially in the workplace, in the whole realm of business and finance, of trade and commerce, the area of the world where we live day by day? And do we not sometimes fall into this sin in various subtle little ways? We think, for example, of a mechanic who tells a customer that there is a problem with his car. There is a faulty part that really does need to be replaced. And he knows that that part is perfectly fine and that it doesn't need to be replaced. And yet he tells the customer, you really probably should replace that. And so he takes the money of the customer 
to fix a problem that he knows doesn't exist. Isn't that stealing? Or a contractor who tells a client that the cost of the house renovation that he is doing has gone up from the previously agreed upon price because the price of lumber has gone up. And maybe the price of lumber really has gone up by $10 per unit or whatever. But he tells the, the contractor or the home buyer that it's gone up by $20, twice the amount that it's actually gone up. And so he takes that money of the contractor to pay for expenses that don't exist. Is that not stealing? Or what about the electrician who has done a job of wiring up a house, or the plumber who has installed all of the pipes through the new house or the home renovation, who tells the buyer that the house is good to go, the job is done, but he knows in his mind there's a serious flaw that we have done in this job. And yet he doesn't tell him about it because he doesn't want to spend the time and the money and the effort that it will take to fix the problem. So he just tells him the house is all finished and he takes the man's money without fixing it. Isn't that stealing? Or maybe there's a farmer who is going to sell pigs to a customer and he knows that his pigs have a serious but hidden illness. And yet, he tells the customer that these pigs are good, healthy, they're ready to go, and he sells them at full price. Isn't he stealing when he takes the man's money in exchange for bad pigs? Or what about the employee who is given a company credit card and is given the leeway to use that credit card, but then he goes and he uses it to buy things that he knows his boss will not approve of? Isn't that a kind of stealing? In other words, any kind of dishonest scheme, any kind of subtle maneuvering that we might do in our businesses, in our workplaces, to try to take more money from our neighbor than we know we ought to take, is stealing. Whether it's a large amount or a small amount. And the apostle says, let him that stole steal no more. And I hope that you are saying to that, amen. And we strive in our business to be ethical and we strive to have the highest standards of quality and of ethics. And yet, isn't it true, too, that we can commit the sin of stealing in our hearts without ever committing it outwardly. We know from experience of hearing sermons on the law of God that God's law never merely touches the outward actions of men, but always goes to the heart. God requires obedience in the heart. So when the apostle says, let him that stole steal no more, he is also saying, let him that covets covet no more, because Covetousness is one of the chief roots of stealing. Why do people steal? Usually, you can trace that back to the heart, and the motivation is covetousness, which is a kind of selfishness. It's a kind of jealousy or greed for things that God has not given to me, but he has given to my neighbor. 
We know the law says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. But how often have we coveted our neighbor's house? Or our neighbor's wife? Or our neighbor's possessions? His manservant, his maidservant, his ox and his ass, all of his property, all of his, all of his possessions, his powers, the things that God has given to him. Sometimes, perhaps, we wish secretly in the hidden recesses of our hearts that we could just reach out and snatch from our neighbor those things, that we could take them to ourselves and have them without there being any consequences, without there being any penalty, without getting caught. How many times have we fantasized about taking, stealing our neighbor's things and getting away with it? How many times have we coveted more and more riches than God has been pleased to give us. So that constantly on our mind is this desire for more riches. Perhaps we've given a place in our heart and soul to the love of money, which we know is the root of all evil. And how many times have we fallen short of the golden rule, which says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Deal with others regarding their property the way you would like them to deal with you regarding your property. In other words, not only that we don't take it away, but that we actually endeavor to help the neighbor keep his property. We want him to have his property. We want him to have what is rightfully his. And we do whatever we can to protect it and make sure that he doesn't lose it. So the apostle says, let him that stole in his heart Steal no more. That's the idea, too. When he says, let him that stole steal no more, he means, let him that stole, first of all, repent. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to recognize in our hearts, yes, actually, I am guilty of that. I can see that I am a thief by nature. I can see that I do have swirling in my flesh the very motives, the very desires and thoughts of the thief. And even if I don't carry them out in highway robbery, nevertheless, I'm guilty of stealing in my heart. I'm guilty of covetousness. I'm guilty of greed and jealousy and envy. And because of those sins, I'm worthy of punishment. Let him that stole repent. Acknowledge our sins to God. O God, I've sinned against thee. I've broken the eighth commandment in which thou dost tell me very clearly not to steal. And the tenth commandment, not to covet. Let him that stole flee then to Christ Jesus, who never stole once in his heart or in his life. Let him that stole throw himself down before the cross of Jesus, And look up there at the suffering servant of God, bearing his sins away. And let him cry out to God for the sake of Christ, Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. I'm covetous. I'm greedy. I'm a thief. Lord, be merciful to me for Christ's sake and forgive my sins. And then let him that stole in thankfulness to God when he hears the gospel of forgiveness of sins through the broken body and shed blood of Christ, let him steal no more. 
Let him resolve. Let her resolve in our hearts to put off the old man with his deceitful lusts, with his selfishness, and steal no more. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. There the apostle shows the alternative. The opposite of stealing is that we labor, working with our hands, the thing which is good. Now, as I reflected on this text, perhaps I came to the conclusion you would too when you ponder it. Most people do that. Most people labor. Most people work with their hands. They have a job. They go to work. It's true, of course, there are some people in the world who make their living by stealing. They lurk in the shadows. They have to flee from the authorities and try not to get caught. They try to earn their living by stealing. They are thieves. And if through our mission work or through our evangelism work, such a thief would be brought to repentance and faith in Christ, and such a thief would be brought into our congregation and become a member here, then truly the text would speak to that brother Brother, you who used to steal, who used to earn your living by stealing, steal no more, brother. But get a job and labor with your hands the thing which is good from now on. And he would need to be helped and encouraged to change those old sinful habits. It's also true that there are some men outside the church and potentially inside the church who tried to earn their living not only by working, but also by stealing. A little bit of both. They go to work, they have a job, but they also steal a bit because they are not satisfied with their income. They're not content with their wages. They're greedy for a little bit more, maybe a lot more, and so they supplement their income by stealing. But most people do work, and we also labor, and we are called to labor. We are called to labor as the alternative to stealing. We are called not to steal at all. That's the point of the text. You might say, well, I do work. I do go to work. I do have a job. I work hard all day, and I steal a little bit as well. You can forgive that. But the apostle is saying, oh no, don't steal at all, but labor. That's the alternative. Only labor, only work to obtain your living and be content with what God gives you. Just like with stealing, we all know what laboring is as well. The children know what it means to work. Children have to learn how to work. But they know what work is. Laboring with our hands means that we have a job. Means that we get up in the morning and we go to work. Whether our work is at home or our work is outside of the home, we go to work and we labor. We exert ourselves, body and mind, sometimes even blood, sweat and tears in the labors of our job that are set before us that day. Labor is good. 
God himself is a laboring God. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth by working for six days. He didn't have to do that. He could have created it and fashioned it perfectly and completely in an instant. But he labored for six days, carefully fashioning, shaping the universe that he had brought into existence because he wanted to teach us to work just like he works. He wanted to teach us to be busy, to be active, to exert ourselves, to be productive, to contribute to society. So the apostle says, don't steal, but work with your hands. When he says to work with our hands, we don't have to explain that as meaning that we have to have a blue-collar job, that we have to have a job that is physical in nature. There are jobs which are blue-collar, physical jobs. We work with our hands in a physical kind of exercise of the body to do the work that we have to do. We have to turn the wrench. We have to pull the plow behind the tractor or, in those days, behind the beast. We have to work hard with our hands out in the sun. But there are other kinds of jobs, white-collar jobs, office jobs, sitting in front of the computer, and that, too, is working with our hands. There's the job of the mother in the home, who also labors with her hands. There's all kinds of work, but it's interesting that almost every kind of work involves the use of the hands. Whether you're turning the wrench or pounding the hammer or, or typing on the keyboard, you're using your hands to work. And the apostle exhorts us to do that work, wherever that might be. Now, work takes effort. That's the thing about work. It takes effort. And after the fall, when God cursed Adam that he would have to toil with sweat of his brow in order to eat his bread, work is no longer easy. In the Garden of Eden, work was a joy. It was easy. There was no sweat. There was no blood or tears. Attending to the garden was the most wonderful task. It required energy, but it was a joy to exert that energy. After the fall, we contend with thorns and thistles and troubles and problems of all different kinds. Work is not easy. Interestingly, the Greek word for labor in the text means to grow weary. And the idea is that when you labor, you grow weary. There's wearisome effort. You come home at night and you almost collapse sometimes because of how hard you had to work, how much sweat you had to put forth. And maybe that's why some people choose to steal. Maybe for some people, stealing is just easier than working. But the apostle says, don't steal. Work. Work. God wants you to work with your hands. To work the thing which is good. The thing which is good is over against the thing which is evil. We are not to work with our hands the thing which is evil. It's possible to do that too. In fact, there are whole jobs and whole industries which are devoted to evil. We are not to participate in those kinds of jobs and in those industries. 
Obviously, we can think of some right away that we know we would never and ought never to participate in. There's the whole world of organized crime. There's the mob. There is drugs and prostitution and pornography. The whole world of darkness where men labor with their hands the things which are evil. We know as Christians we are to have no part with those things. But it also includes any kind of job which requires us to create evil content, evil, sinful, corrupt things. We ought not to produce them, whether on the internet or in any other way. It includes those jobs which require us to work on the Lord's day. When the Lord says, work six days a week and rest one day of the week. There are many jobs today that say you have to work on Sunday, you have to work, you can't go to church. And except for certain exceptions, works of mercy, we are not to take those jobs. And furthermore, there are jobs where we would have to agree to join with all the other workers in an organized strike against the employers if they don't give us the things that we demand. Those are not the kinds of jobs that Christians ought to participate in. Because he says here, work with your hands the thing which is good. That means put in a good, honest, hard day's work in a place where you can labor in good conscience. Where you know that the thing that you are doing is a good thing. You are contributing to society. You are producing something that is good, that is beneficial. You are not involved in a daily compromise of your values and convictions by doing the work that you're doing. Beloved, we have to work the thing which is good. We have to work in the service of Christ. We have to work for the glory of God. And that is a good thing. Work is a good thing. And we ought to be thankful for the work that God has given us to do. Remember, God is the owner of all things in the universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the Lord sees fit to give to us our daily bread in the way of our working. That's the principal way that God is pleased to give us our daily bread. The Apostle writes in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 11, And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. That's the Christian's calling. Study to be quiet, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, to work honestly, to have a good reputation toward those who are without in this regard. And then you will lack nothing. God will provide you with your daily bread. And we are to be content with what God gives. But that's not the purpose that the Apostle mentions in our text. The purpose of our work, that is. Why do we go to work? What's our purpose? What's our goal? What's our motivation? 
In this text, the apostle says that we are to work with our hands, the thing which is good, with this purpose, that we may have to give to him that needeth. So that we would have something to give to the needy. That's why we are to work. Now that sounds very strange to us, doesn't it? That's my goal. That's to be my purpose in working. What is your purpose, brothers and sisters, when you go to work tomorrow, this coming week? When you go to your job, when you get in the truck, when you go and and punch in the, the time clock, and you go about your routines and you receive your income, what's your motivation? What's your goal? What are you aiming at? Not only is that question put to us younger men, also to us middle-aged men, and also to us older men who have perhaps finished our work, our life's calling, and we're now retired. The question is, what was your goal in all of your laboring throughout your life? Your chief overriding motivation, or at least one of the chief motivations, Was it to earn enough money to achieve a certain standard of living and then to maintain that standard of living and perhaps once in a while to improve it throughout your life? Is that the goal? We don't find that in Scripture anywhere. That's the American-slash-Canadian dream. That's not the biblical model. It's the human nature's desire. But the apostle says, don't steal, because that's hating your neighbor. But work so that you can give to your neighbor, so that you can have something to love him with. That's astounding. Totally countercultural. Totally contrary to our instincts, our desires. We can, be some, we can become consumed with all of our plans to achieve that standard of living and to bump it up and to improve it. Now, it's true. The apostle does teach, and we have seen that in the Epistles to the Thessalonians. For example, now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That's true. The Apostle does present that as one of the purposes of our laboring, that we might eat our own bread. But nowhere will you find in the Scriptures labor, work, so that you can be rich. So that you can become better and better and better off. In fact, just the opposite. We're constantly warned against that because That's the natural instinct that wells up from deep within us to improve ourselves, to improve ourselves. 
And so we need to hear this. Because if we are driven by the desire for riches, we're serving an idol God. That's a different God. That's what Jesus calls mammon when he says you can't serve God and mammon. And there, too, there's a call to us all to repent and to realize that our calling in this life is not to achieve some wonderful life here on earth, but to be rich in good works. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says to Timothy, talks about the love of money as the root of all evil, and then he concludes by saying, charge those in the congregation who are rich that they do not trust in uncertain riches, but that they be rich in good works. And how I charge you and myself today, don't trust in uncertain riches, but be rich in good works. In our text, the apostle makes it very specific that we may have something in our hands to give to those who are in need. And here's the gospel pressing its finger on our hearts. That's what God did for us. God in Christ worked with his hands the thing which is good on the cross. His hands spread out, nailed to the accursed tree. There he worked the thing which is good, shedding his precious life's blood. Why? So that he could be rich? No. So that he would have something in those hands to give to us needy sinners. That's the gospel pressing on our hearts. God says, now you go do likewise. He's saying to us, don't only work for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. Don't only work out of love for yourself and your family, but also in love for your neighbor who is in need. You work for that purpose. You have that motivation in your mind when you go to work. I want to be able to have something to give to the poor. To give to the church for the support of the ministry of the gospel, for the support of the theological school, for the support of worldwide missions. I need to have something to be able to give to the Christian schools to support the teachers who generally do not earn a very large salary and will never be rich to support those teachers so that they can teach our covenant children. I need to have something to give to the deacon on Sunday to put into that collection bag for the general fund, for the benevolence fund, and for the other collection. Because I need something to give to those who are in need, and those are all needy causes. I need something to give to the poor right here, in, the, in our congregation, if anyone here is in need. And if everyone here is doing well, I need something to give to the poor outside the congregation, in the community in which I live. And if I live in a rich community, 
I need something to be able to give to the poor outside that community, far off. Whatever contacts I might have, perhaps in India, where there is persecution and unrest and Christians having their homes destroyed, perhaps in Myanmar where civil war rages on, and in many other places of the world. So let us work, not to be rich, but to be rich in good works so that we have something to give to the needy. And let us not be stingy. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. The Lord loves those who give as he has prospered us, those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let us come to church then prepared and ready and eager, as the psalm puts it, Psalm 96, bring an offering and come into his courts. We're all guilty of not preparing well for giving. We should look ahead in the bulletin, the schedule. What's the offering for next week? How much are we going to give to that cause? How needy is that cause? Do we know anything about that cause? In Galatians 6, the apostle says, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, as we have opportunity. First, here in the church, then there, and whenever we have opportunity to give to those in need. We need not go home today feeling guilty of our failures. Rather, let us go home with a renewed resolve, having eaten the bread of life, having been shown again from the scriptures why we're here, what this life is about, what we're called to do. A renewed resolve to give to the poor. It is more blessed to give than to receive. May God grant us grateful hearts, overflowing with love for our neighbor. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are amazed that thou art kind and merciful unto us and hast richly blessed us. We have seen, Father, that once again we are sinners and we do need to grow in the Christian life. Father, may we not be discouraged by our sins, by our failures, but rather build us up in Christ. Give unto us a zeal to be rich in good works, in giving, in generosity, in hospitality. May we seek ways to give to those who are in need. Be with us now as we go into the coming week. 